Hello, welcome to Line by Line. Two guests, three short extracts and some close reading. As usual, you'll hear the passages we're going to talk about before we talk about them, but you can find the text on linebyline.substack.com if you want to, to read along yourself, and you can subscribe to an email list at that address, which will send you the readings when a new episode is released. In this episode, all of our passages come from non-fiction works, and to talk about them, we have two fine writers of non-fiction. The Guardian's drama critic, Arifa Akbar, who recently published Consumed, a sister's story about her sister's death, and Ed Caesar, contributing staff writer to The New Yorker and the author most recently of The Moth and the Mountain. Both of these books now find themselves on the 2021 Costa Biography Award shortlist, in fact, but um, I honestly asked them to take part before that was announced. One other temporal note, this episode was recorded shortly before the death of one of the writers we're talking about here. We weren't aware of it at the time, obviously. So, let's hear our first passage, which I'm pretty sure I must have read years ago. I know I did at university, but I'd forgotten. And it was brought back to my attention recently by a tweet from the Irish writer Colin Barrett. It's from a book that was published in 1971, and these are its opening words. Toward the evening of a gone world, the light of its last summer pouring into a Chelsea street found and suffused the red waistcoat of Henry James... Lord of Decorum, on promenade, exposing his Boston niece to the tone of things. Miss Pegg in London, he had assured her mother, with her admirable capacity to be interested in the near and the characteristic, whatever these may be, would have lots of pleasant and informing experience and contact in spite of my inability to take her out. By out, he meant into the tabernacles of society, His world of discourse teems with inverted commas, the words by which life was regulated having been long adrift, and referable only with lifted eyebrows to usage, his knowledge of her knowledge, of his knowledge of what was done. The Chelsea Street that afternoon, however, had stranger riches to offer than had society, movement, Clatter of hooves, sputter of motors, light grazing house fronts, shadows moving, faces in a crowd. Their apparition, two faces. Ezra Pound, quick, jaunty rubicundity, with a lady. Eyes met, the couples halted, rituals were incumbent. Around them Chelsea sauntered on its leisurely business. James to play. Mr Pound! in the searching voice, torch for unimagined labyrinths, and on to the effect of presenting his niece Margaret, whereafter Mr Pound presented to Mr James his wife Dorothy, and the painter's eye of Dorothy Pound, nay Shakespeare, took in, as James would have phrased it, Henry James, a fairly portly figure. Fifty years later, under an Italian sky, the red waistcoat seemed half chimerical, That may be my imagination, but let us posit it. Gautier wore such a garment to the Hernani premiere, that formal declaration, 1830, of art's antipathy to the impercipient, and James would have buttoned it for this outing with didactic deliberation. 
I mean, I think the reason it's obvious why Chris Barrett posted this, because it's it's sort of hard to imagine that this is nonfiction. It doesn't start us uh, in any in any way like a nonfiction work, um, even less so than the kind of nonfiction work it is. Um, had you seen it before, Ed? Yes, I have. So you know where it is. I, Don't say where I'm it not going to say I'm not going to say I'm not going to say. Um, I should also say that I really, really dislike it. <laughs> You're allowed to dislike it. I said that before. That's discrimination is essential to discrimination. Um, but it's not uninteresting also. So I shall... Just um, give us a, kind of the headline on your dislike. I mean, presumably it's floridity and it's... It's wild and insane. And um, it is a work of pastiche of two writers at the same time. It's also not, in my view, non-fiction, really, because clearly there's a huge act of imagination going on with the waistcoat, which may or may not have happened and which seems like a cornerstone of the entire business. You know, when I get these little clever pastiche bits, you know, the Jamesian sentences, which have the action towards the end, and then you get the pound, you know, the apparition of those faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bow reaction um i think haha how clever and yet we're talking about things that are meant to have happened here and it all feels just a bit much he he describes it later to be fair to to the writer uh he comes back later and makes the point that that this might be provisional uh, he's making the point that this is how memory and history work he he uses the phrase which is all the story like a torn papyrus. And he compares it to Sappho. So he's kind of doing this thing of saying, when you're writing a history or when you're writing any account of, of something that's happened in the past, you are reconstructing. But I mean, he certainly doesn't hold himself back here, Arifa, does he? No, I mean, I'm, I'm with Ed in that I found it frustrating and I think it was deliberately um, making itself tricky uh, and very slippery. When I say slippery, I mean actual movement. That there's a lot of movement here, um, physical movement, narrative movements, and sort of movement in time as well. And it makes you work. And I quite enjoyed working with the passage. I was frustrated by it, but I enjoyed it too because, you know, first of all, is it fiction or non-fiction? Is it about Henry James or is it Ezra Pound? Because we have those. The, the puzzle we're supposed this is something of a puzzle that we're supposed to join up you know we see station at the metro there we see the Jamesian sentences um and what I thought at the beginning I had to read it about three or four times I had to try almost as if to like a crossword figure out what it was doing and but it is was, that what makes you think of it as fiction I mean that yeah. opening paragraph Toward the evening of a gone world, the light of its last summer pouring into a Chelsea street found and suffused the red waistcoat of Henry James is pure, purely fic fictional technique. It's not a kind of description it of the world that you would commonly expect to find in a non-fiction work. But it is just a sort of liberality of language. There's no reason you can't use that kind of style, should you wish to. You're, you're right. There's no reason why this it sh shouldn't be the beginning of a non-fiction book as it is here. I, I couldn't resist it, and I looked it up. I, you know, and I looked up to. See <laughs> All right. Well, they'll tell everybody what it is. This is um, Hugh Kenner's book, The Pound Era, which is really a work of kind of literary 
criticism, I suppose. It's literary, literary criticism. Yeah. And but, but I thought it was almost Dickensian. I know that you're, you know, it, it's sort of slightly panoramic. It has an omniscience that sort of travels from the waistcoat to the street. And then it goes sort of quite imagistic. You know, we're suddenly given snapshots, almost filmic movement, clatter of hooves, splutter of motors. So there's a there's there's the kind of stuff that you'd imagine in that you expect in fiction. Then well, he's, cl- he's clearly emulating James, isn't he? He wants that sort of Jamesian diction to colour the way he writes about James. And I think there's a little bit of the critics essentially saying. I can do this stuff too, should I wish to. Okay, this, but that, uh, that opening paragraph is, you know, quite famous, I think. And I think unjustly so, because you have towards the evening of a gone world. So you have this evening idea, and then you have the light of its last summer pouring into a Chelsea street. And I find it a kind of confusion of images there, because we're talking about the sense of, I mean, this is 1914, I think. So it's that last summer before the world is turned upside down. It's the world of Philip Larkin's moustached, archaic faces and all that. And then you have the light of its last summer pouring to a Chelsea street. It's like two uh, times of day created by that sentence. I th- well, it's a time of day and a, and it's a, a time season, of day and a season, it, compounded? But, but it's also... I don't know. I still have evening in my mind when I'm thinking about the, you know, the light of its last summer pouring into a Chelsea street. I actually just don't think it's very good. I I think I'm I'm in agreement with both of you. I think this is preposterous, you know, that it's sort of (laughs) it's so overblown. And yet I find lots of things in it that I think Mm, are beautiful. So I really like found and suffused the red waistcoat because I get a sense of the glow of this this kind of mythical object because he goes on to say we can't be sure that you know let us posit the waistcoat I mean it's not even sure that it's there and I liked also although again it's a ridiculous sentence his world of discourse teems with inverted commas the words by which life was regulated having been long adrift and referable only with lifted eyebrows to usage I like that lifted eyebrows as a way of describing inverted commas uh, and their their sort of rather precious affected nature. So I keep finding things in it that I like, but I mean, I I am with you. I feel I, like I feel like I should be punished for crimes against punctuation. <laughs> uh, he, the punctuation is all over the place, isn't it? Because he does quick jaunty rubicundity for pound, and there's no commas in that at all. And uh, in its defence, I mean, I agree with everything that both of you have said, but in its defence, and slightly echoing you, Tom, that I did like that original image. I like the sort of bloom and incandescence of that waistcoat. Uh, I think it's quite painterly. It talks of Dorothy Pound's painterliness, in, you know, towards towards the end of our extract. And there's something very painterly, both photographic and painterly, actually, painting in words. There's there's quite a lot of light here. You know, you, you go from that uh, initial burning red that, of the waistcoat to further down. You've got, you know, shadows moving, uh, faces in a crowd. You've got uh, uh, light grazing house fronts. There's something quite modern in, in, this, in the sense that it is a 
it, well, it's, a cam- uh, it's a camera of moving images. Well, you started with painting and you've ended with camera, but I think painting, yes. pa- you know what style this would be painted in if you were to attempt to paint it. It would be a kind of, you know, it would be early 20th century Impressionism, wouldn't it? Uh, and, and street scenes like that. Um, before we move on, uh, do you kind of feel moralistic about it? You said you ought to be punished for the punctuation, Ed. But the one thing you would say about it, um, I've forgotten exactly when it was published, this book. I think it was 71. 71. It's, it's absolutely a style out of fashion now, this, isn't it? There's no question that this is an archaic style. And it's partly archaic because we, we have so taken on the injunction to kill your darlings, you know, to, to cut and to prune and to have a, a kind of ascetic prose. Um, but I quite like that, you know, you know, just let your darlings run all over the place. It's very much <laughs> and of don't its kill time. any of them. It's very much of its time in that I, th- I feel like, you know, new journalism is in flow and you've got Tom Wolfe doing crazy things and you have this, um, this idea that you could have a kind of ecstatic pro style is i mean 1971 you're right in the epicenter of that and so it feels like a historical document <laughs> it doesn't feel like modern non-fiction and it also doesn't feel like the non-fiction of the early 20th century it feels absolute- and do you disapprove do you sort of morally disapprove of it uh, that excess ed or do you think it's it's a pro style that as it were doesn't work to do what it's wanting to do I think there are more precise ways to talk about the frailty of memory than to um, chuck 55 semicolons at me. But I think he knows. He knows he's, be, he's being arch and he, he knows it. You know, he's talk that there's the, the bit you like, Tom, where, you, you know, he says the words by which life was regulated have been long adrift and referable only with lifted eyebrows to usage his knowledge of her knowledge of his knowledge of what was done now that is so arch that's so with it circles within circles he says that you know henry james is is a man who speaks in in inverted commas well he's speaking emphatically in inverted commas he's doing he, he's being incredibly arch here and i have to say that the 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 basic rule of writing is does it want to make you read on and when we get to the the final paragraph in our extract 50 years later under an italian sky I do know, I want to know where this man is going. And it, and there's something of, he's setting up uh, a scene, isn't he? And he's he's using in a very old-fashioned sense, a narrative sense, he's, he's wanting to absolutely draw us onto this Chelsea street. He wants us there, placed well, it's amongst that, but its he also, noise. I think he also wants us to see that um, waistcoat before he then turns around and says... It might not have been there at all. Well, it's a ch- chimera, um, as he says. Yeah. It is the chimera. So he's playing yeah. tricks, but he's drawing me in, even if I'm irritable with him, and I am. You know, I'm, I'm sort of irritated with with his sense of circling, being arch, and not getting down to the, to the nitty-gritty. And um, before we move on to our next extract, I just want some help, because I've been thinking about it. When he talks about James to play Mr Pound in The Searching Voice torch for unimagined mm. labyrinths i can't well, work out what that means well i i had to read that about three or four times and once again i think this is archness i think he's saying J- henry james was a light he shed he, you know he he 
he plumbed uh, profound, uh, plumbed the depths and came up uh, and shone a light to the to the profound things in our world and in 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 the in. There's society. a hint of his labyrinthine sentences too, isn't there? Surely, yes. That, that James is kind of, <laughs> yes. You know, he's a torch for the darkness he creates but, himself. But Tom, it's, <laughs> impre- it's but it's imprecise as well, isn't it? Because he's saying about his spoken voice, right? So what we're actually talking about, if we're talking about mm. the torch for unimagined labyrinths is the written word of Henry James. Yes. It's not him calling out to his mates in the street that is the torch for unimagined labyrinths. <laughs> no, but I think that metaphoric, it's the imprecise. voice... That's the... what gets me about this. <laughs> okay, I'm going to... Before, before Ed gets even closer, <laughs> I'm going to move on to the next extract. Nine months and five days ago, at approximately nine o'clock, on the evening of December the 30th, 2003, my husband... John Gregory Dunn, appeared to, or did, experience, at the table where he and I had just sat down to dinner in the living room of our apartment in New York, a sudden massive coronary event that caused his death. Our only child, Quintana, had been for the previous five nights unconscious in an intensive care unit at Beth Israel Medical Center's Singer Division, at that time a hospital on East End Avenue, It closed in August 2004, more commonly known as Beth Israel North, or the Old Doctor's Hospital, where what had seemed a case of December flu, sufficiently severe to take her to an emergency room on Christmas morning, had exploded into pneumonia and septic shock. This is my attempt to make sense of the period that followed, weeks and then months that cut loose any fixed idea I had ever had about death, about illness about probability and luck, about good fortune and bad, about marriage and children and memory, about grief, about the ways in which people do and do not deal with the fact that life ends, about the shallowness of sanity, about life itself. I have been a writer my entire life. As a writer, even as a child, Long before what I wrote began to be published, I developed a sense that meaning itself was resident in the rhythms of words and sentences and paragraphs, a technique for withholding whatever it was I thought or believed behind an increasingly impenetrable polish. The way I write is who I am, or have become, yet this is a case in which I wish I had instead of words and their rhythms a cutting room, equipped with an avid a digital editing system on which I could touch a key and collapse the sequence of time, show you simultaneously all the frames of memory that come to me now, let you pick the takes, the marginally different expressions, the variant readings of the same lines. This is a case in which I need more than words to find the meaning. This is a case in which I need whatever it is I think or believe to be penetrable, if only for myself. Now, this is a fairly famous piece of writing, too. I I won't be at all surprised if both of you know what this is. I mean, obviously, Arifa, you've had to kind of tackle some of these same problems, the the kind of same encounter with loss and the same difficulty of how you write about it. Did you read it before you wrote your book? Yes, I read it some years ago, and then it cast a shadow over over my book because it's it, it casts a huge shadow over. I think it's it's quite an important 
book, certainly in my reading of it, because it did something um, very different from the grief rem- memoirs I was reading around this time. It was written in 20, 2005, wasn't it? And until until I read Joan Didion's um, Your Magical Thinking, I, I hadn't read a grief memoir, which is what this essentially is, that was so uh, restrained and, and withhold, emotionally withholding, but also so rigorous, intellectually rigorous, um, almost defiant in its uh, emotional restraint. And you see that in in the way this passage begins, I think, because I think the writing is cleaving to form and facts and order. And a, yes, a this, narrative this order. passage, I mean, it reads as though it's the beginning of the book. It isn't. It's, it's about a page or a page and a half yeah. in. And she's started in a much more impressionistic way. And then yeah. it's, a, it's almost as if she gathers herself uh, to explain what she's about with this passage. Um, Ed, did you admire this any more? No, than, I love uh, this. I, I love this book. I love this book so much. This is one of my favourite non-fiction books maybe ever. You know, I think it's so beautiful. And you sit, you know, in these parentheses appear to or did experience. You find mm. this sly way of hanging on to the factualness of things. Um you know, we were talking about memory with the last message. You know, memory is the great non-fiction theme. It's the supreme thing that you write about because we're always talking about how trustworthy certain things are um, in our memory and how we remember things. And what I love about this is that it just very, very movingly says that you are cut loose from your normal modes of thinking when you are bereaved you are cut loose from the things that make you what you are. Um, and, you know, this this passage in which she says, I've been a writer my entire life. You know, long before what I wrote began to be published, I developed a sense that meaning itself was resident in the rhythms of words and sentences and paragraphs. And they will no longer do for her in this instant. And that is what makes this book, I think, just incredibly interesting because she moves beyond language but she's also trying to describe that process in language um i i think my selection here um that that line um is absolutely the the hinge of the piece it comes about halfway through but i I think it also highlights something which is she starts in this very conventional american journalist style which is you know where when who you you state the absolute facts and and then it seems to me you start to see after she's talked about her child and, and you have that shock of thinking, oh, my God, you know, not only has this happened to her, but this has happened too. she almost starts to disappear into the facts. You know, um, at, at Beth Israel Medical Center's Singer Division, at that time, a hospital on East End Avenue, brackets, it closed in August 2004. Why are you talking about that? I totally agree. I think she's girding herself and she's hiding behind form and language and words that she's talking, admitting admitting to later on, is there at the beginning of this passage. So at the beginning of this passage, she's almost ludicrously formal I'm afraid you know if you if you look at the way she describes her husband witnessing her husband's heart attack she calls it a coronary event I mean that's so removed emotionally removed that it seems almost it seems very artificial and that the first hint of any 
below the surface disturbance is the word explode, exploded. Until then, you've got dates, names, times. She's telling us, as you say, the, the details of the history of the hospital. And then suddenly she's telling us that her daughter was taken into hospital. They thought it was flu. And then she was. they took her to an emergency room on Christmas morning it, that flu that she had exploded into pneumonia and, and septic shock. And that word explosion is, is like a bit of a bomb there for me because I think well, it's and, the and first it's followed, sign but, yeah. of an eruption. And it's, and it's followed by that word that Ed quoted, which is cut loose. So there's, we've got these two kind of quite violent expressions that but, sort of but say... It, I do feel that this is a really interesting passage in that she's admitting to dissemblance within language, which well, is I was very going- interesting. But I think, uh, I mean, that was a question I was going to put to both of you. That she has the sense that style is inimical to truth in a way. I mean, that is one of the proposals that's put forward here, that she's saying that it's polished, that it's a surface gloss. And I wondered, both of you, in your writing, whether you ever feel that, whether you have that struggle of thinking, well, this sentence is beautiful, but it hasn't got, because it's beautiful, it's missing the point. It's quite interesting sort of working for the magazine that I do that you have this process at the end of a, a piece going into print where we go over all this stuff endlessly. Is it true? Is it true? Is it true? And what happens when things become truer is the sentences become slightly worse. <laughs> because <laughs> This is the famous New Yorker fact-checking fact fact process. Check. But, you know, sometimes you lose things and it's not because you know, the way that you had it before is necessarily untrue, but it would be more true to say it in a different way, sometimes. So it's a kind of unpolishing process. It can be. The fact and then maybe towards the end, you can then reclaim some of the nice bits, but you have to put it through the strainer first. I find all that quite interesting because, you know, you and sometimes there, there is a, there's like a beautiful phrase that the editor can see and then finds surplus to requirements because there is just one you know rhythm is more important than a nice phrase and you know you you know you'd rather be a writer of good paragraphs than good sentences well I'm of I'm really in the George Orwell camp where I think there's a real beauty and clarity and simplicity in using a short word instead of a long one and I think that kind of writing has its own beauty perhaps it's because my training is journalistic and you know writing a book was really writing in those fairly pared down journalistic perhaps sentences and I see the beauty of journalistic language um, I think I sometimes a, a beautiful sentence can hide and I have done this before uh, hiding behind an eloquent sentence when I just can't stomach really telling the bare and an unpleasant uh, truth if I'm writing a review if I don't like something and it's a very difficult thing to admit to, then I will often hide behind language. And, and you know, I won't do it a lot, but it's when I, I, I just can't do it. I can't lay that final punch and, and it'll be softened through a kind of nice sentence. And, that, and that's, and I think language, you know, I, have, I think journalists and reviewers have to be really alert to um, the dishonesty of a beautiful sentence. <laughs> Okay, well, we've now we've alerted the readers of the Guardian now. That, <laughs> I never do. Rare, rare, it's very rare. <laughs> Before we move on from this one, it's a great list that in the you were talking about rhythm, Ed, yeah. and I think her list 
after this is my attempt to make sense of the period that followed uh, the cut the thing that cut loose any fixed idea i ever had about death about illness about probability and luck about good fortune and bad about marriage and children and memory about grief about the ways in which people do and do not deal with the fact that life ends about the shallowness of sanity about life itself uh, it's a great list that isn't it and it's a skill to be able to sort of build a uh, a list like that. Yeah, it's got a snare drum rhythm um, and something, I think it's called, I don't know, what is it? Polysyndeton, a profusion of ands in the middle, which lends it its rhythm. Um, and then the ands get sucked away towards the end. Jay's very good at writing lists like that is my colleague, Lauren Collins. Her rhythm is better than I think anyone else writing the magazine. She's an incredible ear. And it's such a joy to read a sentence like that because it sort of rises and falls and you end up in a very satisfying place. I wonder if she's really going to plumb the depths here because even when she's breaking herself down and admitting to the the lie of her words and rhythms and languages, even then she wishes for a digital editing system on which I could touch the key and collapse the sequence of time. In other words, she still wants some empirical, scientifically proven system um, with which to mine that profound well of emotion just just quickly on that point you know in these big and traumatic and um life-changing moments we create we seem to create more memories i remember you know a very bad car crash that i had while on assignment in the congo and i I have maybe 50 snapshot images from probably it must have you know it must have been three seconds of tumbling off the road in this car and you think well that does not exist for other moments in your life there must be some Darwinistic reason why this happens. I don't know why. But, you know, I've, I feel like that is both a kind of interesting linguistic operation that's going on there with her digital editing system and an interesting piece of language, but also something that just seems to be true about these big moments in your life. You seem to create too much data and you need a great editor to, you know, to make it a narrative. That's very interesting. Okay, let's let's go on to the final extract we've got. This is a description of a restaurant in wartime. I should say that the scubnizzi, uh, the Italian word that occurs here, they're street urchins. And he does use a word here, uh, he uses language here that we probably wouldn't use anymore um, about disability. No attempt was made to chase them away. They were simply treated as non-existent. The customers had withdrawn from the world while they communed with their food. An extraordinary cripple was dragged in, balancing face downwards on a trolley, only a few inches from the ground, arms and legs thrust out in spider fashion. Nobody took his eyes off his food for one second to glance down at him. This youth could not use his hands. One of the Skugmitsi hunted down a piece of bread for him, turned his head sideways to stuff it between his teeth, and he was dragged out. Suddenly five or six little girls between the ages of nine and twelve appeared in the doorway. They wore hideous straight black uniforms buttoned under their chins, and black boots and stockings, and their hair had been shorn short, prison style. They were all weeping, and as they clung to each other and groped their way towards us, bumping into chairs and tables, I realised they were all blind. Tragedy and despair had been thrust upon us and would not be shut out. 
I expected the indifferent diners to push back their plates, to get up and hold out their arms, but nobody moved. Forkfuls of food were thrust into open mouths. The rattle of conversation continued. Nobody saw their tears. Latarullo explained that these little girls were from an orphanage on the Vomero, where he had heard, and he made a face, conditions were very bad. They had been brought down here, he found out, on a half-day's outing by an attendant who seemed unable or unwilling to stop them from being lured away by the smell of food. The experience changed my outlook. Until now, I had clung to the comforting belief that human beings eventually come to terms with pain and sorrow. Now I understood I was wrong, and like Paul, I suffered a conversion. But to pessimism. These little girls, any one of whom could be my daughter, came into the restaurant weeping, and they were weeping when they were led away. I knew that, condemned to everlasting darkness, hunger and loss, they would weep on incessantly. They would never recover from their pain, and I would never recover from the memory of it. So again, I would be very surprised, Ed, if you don't know what this is. I'm I'm guessing that you probably do. Uh, yeah, and you're nodding your head as well. I think, Arifa, do you recognise yes, this? Yes. Yeah, is this a writer you admire? I love. Yeah, I love. Um, can I say who it is? Uh, yeah, go on. Yeah, say who it is. Norman, since you both Norman know Lewis, already. Yeah. yeah. So it's. Uh, yeah, this is from his book Naples Forty Four, which is uh, an account of his time as an intelligence officer in in Naples during the war. So all of all three passages have been about memory in some way, and how we, you know, how we edit memory and how we talk about it. I was thinking about. Uh, Tintin Abbey, there are in existence spots of time that with a distinct preeminence retain a renovating virtue and the kind of inversion of that. The the thing that Norman Lewis does here is he inverts a Pauline conversion. So his worldview becomes much less optimistic because of this thing that he witnesses. And what I love is this very complete scene with only one person really witnessing it. So it takes this one sensitive intelligence officer witnessing the scene for it to actually gain meaning. But for everyone else, it's part of just life going on around them. Um, and it's, there is something quite moving about the role of the writer here. You know, the, the, the writer's job I is would, to witness, right? It is. I mean, I would just add a, a small note of cynicism, which is that we only have his word that he's the only person who's noticing it or indeed feeling it. I agree. I agree. Well, I'm, I'm, this was the most interesting passage in terms of its language for me. I thought it was actually quite complicated. And I think, Tom, I agree with you in that, that the narrator has a very interesting position, which I'm not comfortable with. So I love everything he does in this passage. I love the fact that there are the haves and have-nots in this restaurant. Uh, there's dehumanisation going on, you know, just from the very first image of what is called an extraordinary cripple being dragged into this restaurant where the rich are eating their food, communing with their food as if it's some sort of spiritual event. This cripple, so-called cripple, is, is splayed, thrust indoors in a spiderly fashion. That made me think of Gregor Samsa, you know, the insect, the human-made insect, dehumanised. And and that goes on. If you see, you know, even when the um, street children give this 
poor spider, spider human, some, some bread, they stuff it in his teeth. It's a form of torture rather than a form of charity. And then he's dragged out. And there's real savage images that come, that, that are, it, it really made me think of dehumanizing other people's pain and suffering, something that Susan Sontag talks about in regarding the pain of others. Here it's going on because of what's really key, the key sentence for me here was, the narrator is in an omniscient way, we think, describing these scenes, but suddenly you get the sentence, I, he comes into it, I realized they were blind, this group of, of girls coming in, and then he says, Tragedy and despair had been thrust upon us and would not be shut out. Us would had been thrust upon us. He's allying himself with the, the, the people that are closing their eyes to pain and suffering right there within their sight. And he's uh, allying himself to the us. I know later down in the passage, he's, he suddenly has this negative epiphany and he, he calls himself St. Paul. But it's very interesting that there's denial there. You know, this tragedy has come through the door and it's been thrust upon us like it's some sort of inconvenience and it won't be shut out. And I find well, that fascinating. Is it? I think it's a very powerful piece of prose, this. And, and it's a brilliant book, Naples 44, kind of unblinking about what happens in wartime and how all sorts of moralities are eroded by, by poverty. But I did write, do we believe him, by that final paragraph about the Damascene conversion. Because well, he, he, I thought... Well, he's writing this some time after, is he not? But he writes it as a journal. It's an odd kind yeah. of construction, that, that he writes it, as it were, page date by date, as if it's a diary. But it's in the past tense. It's published, you know, 1978, 34 years after the events it describes. And I wondered whether there's a bit of working up going on there. Or maybe he's... Maybe he is acknowledging that that was a moment that changed him forever. I understand some of the hesitation that you feel about this, but it is a subjective experience. And I don't, I feel like that's how witness works. I mean, it, I just wonder whether he's grandstanding slightly, because I th it seems to me it's, it's fine to say, I would never recover from the memory of it. But when he says, I knew that condemned to everlasting darkness, hunger and loss, they would weep on incessantly. Mm. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that their case is hopeless. And It's, it's also quite hyperbolic. It's like the si Greek sirens crying away, you know, forever and eternity. Uh, and I think that that's hyperbole. But I, I think there's shame in this passage that's not being admitted. You know, when he says, you know, this tragedy has been thrust upon us and won't be shut out. And then he goes on to say, uh, talk about the indifferent diners, you know, pushing forkfuls of food um, in and thrusting in their forkfuls, own... Forkfuls, he uses the same word thrust about thrust. the forkfuls of food. It's very savage, it's a sort of aggressive... But, but, but that echo, I think, is interesting too, because as a writer, you would normally think, oh, hang on, I've repeated a word uh, and, and I'll change it. I'll have some elegant variation. He's chosen not to. Yes, um, it's emphatic. So he wants that repeat. It's, he wants that repeat. And there's something about the, the rich people being dehumanised, being seen as mechanicals there. They're just thrusting food in their mouths and, um, and you know, they're indifferent. And, and I think he's already allied himself. The us in that sentence was 
the diners and him. But but what he I think where he's going is that he he is no longer the us that the di- the indifferent diners are. He is he relates the blind girls. He could he says these little girls, any one of whom could be my daughter. Suddenly there is a, a identification. There's empathy, um, and that's, um, that's the conversion. That the um, guilt isn't know. there. He yeah. doesn't admit to his guilt, but I think there's guilt there. No, shame. no, I think you're right. There is a little bit of guilt there. Um, Ed, you might know, know this. I don't think that he had a daughter in 1944, but he may have had a daughter by the time he came to write I'm it up. I'm not sure. I would have to check. It would be interesting. It would to be know, interesting to know. <laughs> <laughs> when the daughter entered this piece of reportage. The other thing, the other thing to say is that all reportage is creation in some way you choose to see some things and not see other things you know you do your best as a journalist to create an objective truth but any reporter who looks upon a scene is looking in a certain direction and not looking in another direction and they do so because of things that are on their mind or not on their mind and here I I don't have the moral problem with this passage that I hear from uh, other quarters. I don't have the moral problem in that who has not considered a a scene like this kind of outrageous, obscene, you know, to throw up your hands. And if there is hyperbole in it, it's because he, fe- you know, he feels something strongly in this moment, which is that there are these indifferent diners, there are these poor, wretched children, and here I am and no one else seems to notice. To me, that's powerfully conveyed in this. No, I, I mean, I entirely think it's human. We, who among us has not melodramatised our own moral responses to things? We we live in a sort of theatre of our own creation, don't we? It, it was just, I couldn't read that last paragraph and not think, did you really feel this? Or did you, you know, go away and lead your life perfectly normally the next yes. day? Or did you feel it on that day? Because that would yeah. still be valid to feel like you yeah. would, for the rest of your life, have this have this image in your head and it would change your view about morality and pain and what life was about and then the next day you went and forgot all about it that would still it wouldn't invalidate the experience that you had on that day no you wouldn't you don't need to keep defending him uh, I because I, I mean I'm I, I, he's a great writer <laughs> I feel like I'm 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 in between I'm the compromise between both your positions I think that he is what He's having the moral process, not not any of us reading it. He is saying until a certain point when he stops um, seeing himself as as one of the diners, um, as just a indifferent witness. He's he, what he's concerned with in the first part of this passage is the tragedy of witnessing suffering rather than the suffering itself. We're all in agreement, I think, that we're, he's a wonderful writer, and uh, mm. you know. People should definitely read. People should read Naples Forty Four. That's what they should do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we we can completely agree on that. Um, well, thank you very much indeed. Um, we've run on much longer than I expected to because I enjoyed talking to you so much. Uh, thank you very much, Arifa Akbar and Ed Caesar. Uh, good luck to both of you for the Costa Award announcements. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, and at linebyline.substack.com you will get an email reminder with the readings for the latest episode if you subscribe there. My thanks also to Delhi Siegel, who did the readings, and our producer, Ben Tullo. 
Not sure what we've got coming next, but there will be another episode. And if you've enjoyed this one, you can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and at linebyline.substack.com. You'll get an email reminder if you sign up there with the readings for the latest episode. Until then, goodbye. Thank you.